At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll speak with Barbara Ehrenreich. Her new book, it's called Had I Known, is a collection of her essays, starting with the classic Nickel and Dimed, that report on her experiment in living with low-wage work. But first, Mike Davis on the geopolitics of the pandemic and the Depression. Mike, of course, best known for writing City of Quartz. He's got a book coming out this week. It's called Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. I'm the co-author on that one. He also wrote a book in 2005 on another virus, the avian flu. That one is called Monster at Our Door. And recently he's been writing a lot about the new virus, including several pieces for the nation. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Well, so far, 90% of the reported cases and deaths from the coronavirus have occurred in the rich, developed countries. The highest number in the world right now is right here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. But there are 2 billion people in poor countries who don't have medical care or health insurance or unemployment benefits. So we have a lot to talk about here. Maybe we should start with the developed world. The highest rate is, first of all, in Spain, which has been five times higher than the United States per capita. Italy is second, but right across the border in Germany, the death rate is about half of what we have in the United States. So we see huge differences in Western Europe. What we also see in Western Europe is the collapse of any kind of coordination or mutual aid within the European Union. And in many respects, the EU uh, response has been as disorganized and fragmented uh, as the case of the United States. Now, within the EU, countries still control most of their health policy, but the EU, EU has a convention that in the case of a disease emergency, a pandemic, countries will provide each other with uh, uh, mutual aid and they'll attempt to coordinate it as uh, a community. The opposite of that happened almost immediately after uh, the end of uh, the carnival week in ski season, where Italians probably picked up the virus from Germans who'd been in, in East Asia. Uh, France sealed its border and then followed by other countries and refused to uh, share any of their medical supplies with the Italians. In the middle of March, the Italian uh, ambassador on the European Council in angrily denounced his sister countries for what he called their betrayal of Italy. And we can assume now that there's a very high probability that when the uh, Salvini's Northern League government 
returns to power, as it most certainly will, uh, that Italy may leave the uh, European Union just as uh, 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 Britain did. So the European Union has revealed itself once again, uh, showing the same kind of response. It, this response mirrors what happened, of course, and happened with the refugee uh, crisis. The whole European project now appears in, in jeopardy and in doubt. Well, I want to just pause for a minute to talk about the statistics here. The number of cases and the number of deaths that we know about, of course, depends on testing, which we know is way behind the disease, especially in the United States. And in a lot of places, including the United States, we are told that since hospitals are overcrowded, we should stay home until we have the most serious symptoms. Don't go to the hospital until you can't walk more than three steps. Uh, that means lots of people are dying at home or in nursing homes and may not even be counted as COVID-19 cases unless they're tested post-mortem. So the statistics almost certainly underestimate both the number of cases and the number of deaths pretty much all over the place. Isn't that true? Oh, of course. And the situation's even more bizarre uh, in, for instance, sub-Saharan Africa, where there's still relatively few cases, although now reported in every single country. But the actual uh, infection uh, is now spread and must be much, much larger uh, than reported. Initially, it was thought that Africa somehow would be spared from the pandemic, mainly because uh, it's such a young continent. Yeah. Uh, 3% of Sub-Saharan Africans are over 65, while 23% of uh, Italians are over 65, 15% of uh, Americans. But that doesn't take into account the pre-existing conditions, the ravages of HIV, of uh, widespread tuberculosis, and above all, of malnutrition and the lack of elementary uh, sanitation. So the real massacre of humanity may only be beginning in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, but also in the slums of South Asia and in Latin America, where similar conditions exist. Yeah, I have a friend here in L.A. who's got a lot of ties to Zimbabwe. I recently asked him whether the coronavirus had hit Zimbabwe yet, and he just laughed. He said, you know, they don't have doctors, they don't have hospitals, they don't have uh, testing. I looked at the official statistics, uh, 14 cases in, in Zimbabwe, but, you know, that's meaningless, isn't it? The problem in Africa is that the 1980s uh, debt crisis uh, dismantled the existing institutions, public health institutions in many, many countries. And they've uh, never recovered from that. And with the possible exception of Nigeria and South Africa, all these countries have to spend far more on servicing their debt to American and European banks than they do on a public health system. So the existing facilities for treating, for instance, acute respiratory cases are uh, minuscule or even totally absent in these countries. 
Kenya has 130 ICU beds. Sudan has has 30. Other countries uh, uh, virtually have no ventilators. So they simply don't have the the resources short of major international aid campaign. And of course, for us, uh, America first means Africa last. And the U.S. has totally abdicated uh, uh, any role in international assistance. And the Europeans are so preoccupied with their own what's called crisis of solidarity uh, that they've only supplied very meager uh, support to Africa. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization, is, which Trump is now vowing to defund, uh, is in total disarray because it's been hollowed out for, for decades. Only 20% of its budget comes from uh, direct contribution of the member governments. The rest of it has to be sought by individual negotiations with Washington, Beijing, and with things like the Gates Foundation. So the Director General of the World Health Organization has spread a lot of disinformation because he's had to shuttle back and forth between Beijing and Washington, uh, praising Trump to the skies, praising uh, Comrade Xi you know, for his heroic efforts. And all it's got him now is the enmity of uh, the Trump administration as it turns to use uh, uh, China's supposed role in unleashing the pandemic as it's one of its major campaign motives. I saw today that the Pew Trust, which conducts the uh, most frequent and often most authoritative American uh, political polls, that fully uh, one quarter of Americans believe uh, that coronavirus was engineered in a Chinese biowarfare lab and deliberately unleashed on the United States. We need to tell those people that Trump closed the American-funded monitoring station for virus alerts in Wuhan two months before the virus escaped. So I guess Trump was in on the, uh, the deal. Well, I mean, the since the beginning of the Trump administration, the, the Obama administration, because it, it considered Ebola to be such a threat, uh, not only undertook an, uh, a very large-scale uh, aid program in West Africa, sending 3,000 American troops, but it also reinforced the institutions responsible uh, for early warning about pandemics and and for response. Uh, it jacked up the directorate for uh, uh, world health safety within the National Security Council, uh, a group of some of the most expert people uh, on disease response in the country involved in that. And it set up an expanded uh, actually expanded an existing program that you alluded to, uh, which basically set up observatories all over the world uh, to detect and analyze uh, emergent viruses as, uh, as they came. So when Trump took power, and because 
feels the same way about Obama programs that Dracula does about crosses. <laughs> he, um, he began to systematically dismantle all of this, starting with budget cuts to the CDC, the dispersal of some of its key scientists, then turned on, actually it was John Bolter, Bolton who, who led this, turned on the uh, directorate inside the NSC and dissolved it and fired uh, these people who were, you know, some of our most experienced administrators of uh, disaster response. Uh, he then just uh, in September, as you were talking about, uh, he cut off all the funding for the early warning system. And of course, this is, you know, against the background of continuous assaults and American public health in, in, in general, uh, cutting back uh, medical aid in, in, in places, leaving a public health system in this country, which really uh, suffered major blows during the 2008 recession, with, for instance, uh, 60,000 fewer public health workers than it had uh, before 2008. Let me shift the focus here for a minute to India. You've written some really interesting stuff about the Indian experience of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic and uh, its implications for, for this pandemic. I think everybody knows now is, and understands that the Spanish flu 1918-1990 actually misnamed since the first outbreak was in Kansas, so we should probably call it the Kansas flu. <laughs> Okay. Everybody knows it's the biggest uh, single mortality event probably in human history. But the story that's uh, usually told in the classical accounts concentrates on the United States and it concentrates on the Western Front, where the Spanish flu incapacitated and killed so many soldiers that it became a... Uh, played a decisive role in who won the uh, First World War. But 60% of the people who died on Earth died in Western India. We're talking about 20 million people. Wow. And a disease that in the United States had been characterized as a mortal danger primarily to, primarily to uh, healthy young men and women because uh, somehow it turned their immune systems against their lungs, took on an entirely different shape in India. Why? Well, the Indians were famished. Uh, as part of the war effort, uh, the British literally expropriated uh, crops to feed their armies in the field in the Middle East, and they accelerated grain exports to England. There was a drought. There had also been a uh, cholera epidemic. So when it reached India, it reached what was in some ways a, a different immunological humanity, you know, where there were millions of people who were immune compromised, weak, had some kind of existing uh, condition. And this reshaped the nature of the pandemic, as it did in some other countries. Iran, which was occupied by the British during the First World War, uh, similar problems with high food prices and shortages 
but most of all, uh, there'd been a spike in malaria. And it turns out that malaria is a co-infection with the uh, Spanish flu. It was absolutely deadly. And 20% of the Iranian population uh, died in the course of 1918, early 1919. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this provides us with a very chilling uh, uh, case study for understanding what may happen now as uh, millions of cases develop in the global south. Well, looking forward to what's going to happen when the virus is finally tamed, presumably by a vaccine. China is already recovering pretty impressive way. And China is also emerging as the place we need to go to get masks, ventilators, and all kinds of equipment. Is this going to be the future of world health? I mean, China has been able to step into the gap created by European and and, uh, uh, American uh, lack of any kind of commitment or or aggressive attempt to aid the third world. So it's currently aiding dozens, perhaps scores of countries, uh, ranging uh, from uh, Ecuador to, to Italy, but certainly almost in every country in, uh, in Latin America. And this is very helpful to, to China because China's hard economic cloud has increased, of course, astronomically over the last 20 years. So that, for instance, uh, most of Africa is in debt to China uh, because of loans or because of big infrastructural projects they've been talked into uh, uh, doing. And there's a, been a reaction over the last couple of years. Africans are wondering, if, gee, this Chinese aid, isn't this just a new form of, of neocolonialism? So China's had, in a way, a deficit of soft power, of, of moral prestige. and by being able to respond and respond with with such an enormous output of medical supplies and expertise, it takes over the humanitarian leadership that's been forfeited by Brussels uh, and Washington. Although China now is uh, in a very dangerous situation since the international Lized, uh, chains of, of production, the so-called value chains, are now temporarily shut down, but they probably will never regain the importance or centrality they had in the world economy after this is over, to the extent it's over. I think we're now realizing we live, we're living not just in a pandemic, but an age of, of, of pandemics. And there be a lot of pressure now to ensure that each country can supply itself with uh, crucial medical supplies. But beyond that, we're going to see the repatriation of production. And this might seem to be the dream that, uh, you know, so much of blue-collar America has of the factories coming back. But the problem is it will also accelerate automation as cheap labor becomes less essential in the, in the global economy. And uh, China is already plagued with huge contradictions 
about which uh, thousands of economists and investors and business magazines have been obsessed with for the, you know for the last few years. So even as it gains uh, prestige through its response to the disease, uh, faced with the decline of its uh, exports and its uh, trade surpluses, it falls in a dangerous position. That's why it would be incorrect to say that, well, the pandemic's just accelerating the transition from uh, an American-dominated world economy to a Chinese-dominated one, because China's uh, stability is very much in doubt. We are living not just through a pandemic, but in an age of pandemics. Mike Davis, you can read him, among other places, at thenation.com. Mike, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. Now it's time to speak with Barbara Ehrenreich. She's got a new book out. It's called Had I Known. It's a collection of her greatest essays, starting with the unforgettable Nickel and Dimed, her experiment in low-wage work. It became her first bestseller, and since then it's been assigned in hundreds of colleges, often as the common freshman reading, the book all members of a school's incoming freshman class read over the summer and then talk about during orientation week. We talked with Barbara Ehrenreich about Nickel and Dimed when the book was first published in 2002. Barbara Ehrenreich, the question you take up is, how does anyone live today on the wages available to unskilled workers? And the answer that you come up with briefly is that it's almost impossible. What were the rules you set for yourself in the beginning? Well, my initial rules were that I had to um, find the cheapest place I could to live in, but consistent with living indoors and, you know, some <laughs> degree of uh, safety. Okay. Um, that was that kind of rule got violated a little bit at certain times. And then I had to take the best-paying job I could get. And my third rule was I had to try, you know, I had to work hard and, you know, try my best and not get fired for some silly reason. So the first job you got was uh, waitressing close to home in Key West. Uh, tell us what the, what the work was like and what the money was like. Well, uh, I think any, a lot of people probably listening have served in restaurants uh, at some point in their lives. I, I had done so in, when I was a teenager and in college. Me too. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, you know what it's like. It's, um, it's pretty exhausting work. You're always on your feet. You're running a lot of the time. And even if the place isn't full of customers, you've got all your side work to keep up with. But I, I knew that to begin with. Wages are pathetic. Um, wages are... Two dollars and change an hour. Wait a minute. Uh, wait a minute. Two dollars. Two dollars, and um, in one place it was fifteen cents an hour. I what, what? What? But wait a minute. What about the minimum wage it laws? How, apply. how can apply they pay because, you? Uh, servers are tipped. Ah. Uh, so you're you. It's that's you know that's where your money comes from. I, I hope everybody realizes this. The tipping isn't optional for the server, uh, at least from the server's perspective. Uh, because you absolutely have to get you have to get that to you know even get up to the minimum wage. So, how much were you able to make with tips working as a waitress in Key West? Well, I I was in some pretty um, let's see dismal places, uh, and I'm not young enough to get the really good jobs. You have to be uh, young and attractive to get the really high tip 
jobs, and I'm, I'm not experienced. You know, I my experience is decades out of date. So I got uh, not great jobs in places with um, one place was very slow. There wasn't enough business, I, so I left that job, went to another, uh, which was higher volume, but the tips were still awfully low, averaging around ten percent. So I, you know, I made I averaged seven seven fifty an hour somewhere in there as a waitress. Did your coworkers um, have any secret economies, any tricks to making this this kind of uh, money uh, last longer that that middle class people don't know about? Well, no. <laughs> you know, I sort of thought maybe I'll find out. Maybe there's some secret to this that I can't guess. Yeah. Unless I get it out there and do it, uh, but. No, I found, well, you know, there are strategies you can imagine. Uh, you know, the most common one is that you have to have more than one low-wage earner in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that can mean grown children or even teenage children as well as a spouse, something like that. So you try to patch it together that way. Another strategy is um, taking more than one job. Uh, and I did try that, too, um, and I have to admit, I could not do two demand, you know, physically demanding jobs in one day. Uh, I was warned <laughs> that it would. I was warned by um, a manager that it would be impossible, and uh, she was right. But a lot of people uh, do, you know, combine usually a job and a half, eight hours and six hours, or something like that. Very, very difficult. But I also found that a lot of people you know, that I was working alongside weren't really quite making it. At least a couple of people turned out to be actually homeless. Although I wouldn't have guessed it because I just, you know, have stereotypes in my mind of how homeless people should look. And these people look fine and they, you know, you can find places to shower uh, very often, public places, and come to work clean. But the odd thing was that these people didn't consider themselves homeless because if as long as you have a car or a I mean, or a van or something to sleep in, uh, that's not really considered absolutely homeless. When you applied for these jobs as waitress or later a hotel housekeeper, wasn't it obvious that you were a middle-class, educated uh, intellectual? Uh, I, I guess I thought, too, that there was a danger that I would be, uh, you know, that I might stand out and uh, in some way. But no, never. The only way I stood <laughs> never. out... In every job was that I was the least, you know, always the new person and had a lot to learn. I had to sort of <laughs> kind of minimize my uh, experience in education a little bit on application forms. I didn't put down that I have a Ph.D. Uh, I didn't think that would help me get jobs because, <laughs> you know, they think, what's wrong with her, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I described myself as a divorced homemaker reentering the workforce after several years. And that's true as far as it goes, right? No, I'm a freelance writer. It's not the same as having jobs. Um, <laughs> and and what was the state of uh, sort of uh, class solidarity and class conflict on the job start, starting in Key West? Almost everybody I worked alongside with worked really hard and really put their hearts into their, their work and took a lot of pride in, in doing a good job. On the other side of it, though, was that um, management tended not to respect uh, the amount of work and effort uh, they were getting uh, from from people, uh, and um, I was I was astounded really at how badly uh, people are treated. Um, 
What do you, what do you mean badly well, treated? Well, first for one thing, you have no privacy in in uh, the low wage workplace, and actually a lot of medium wage workplaces too these days. Uh, you know, from the beginning when you have to go through a drug test and uh, a personality test uh, to get the job. I mean, I think those things are invasions of privacy. On my one of my very first days at at work in one of these waitressing jobs, and this applies to all the other places too, I was warned that my purse could be searched at any time by management. And you know, I couldn't believe it. But that's true. Management has a right to search your purse or your backpack or whatever if it's on his property. You are subject to all kinds of ridiculous rules, rules like no gossiping, <laughs> or in at Walmart it was no talking. <laughs> wow. I mean, you could, course, you could talk to other people just if it was about the work in a, in a very brief way, but you were not ever to chat with a fellow worker, even if there was no, you know, urgent thing to do at that moment. So you had to sneak to do that. Or rules like um, no eating or drinking anything, which um, was really an unhealthy kind of rule at one place I, I worked, which was a house cleaning service, and we could be cleaning one giant house for four hours and be, um, you know, not allowed to have a bite of anything or a sip of water during that time. Then there so, were also the rules about going to the bathroom. Well, well, I thought that there would be breaks <laughs> everywhere. I thought breaks were a right. But no, um, there is, um, OSHA says you have the right to go to the bathroom in a timely fashion, but that's not something that is enforced um, very uh, energetically. Sometimes you have to sneak to take a leak. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keeler. Uh, Barbara, you moved to Minneapolis where people are nice and where wages are high. Uh, you applied for a job at Walmart. Uh, what happened then? Well, let me say, it's not that easy to get a job at Walmart. <laughs> uh, you, there, there's the quite a, a tricky person uh, personality test you have to get through. And uh, I was told before I took it, you know, don't worry, there are no right or wrong answers, just whatever you think. Well, then the uh, personnel manager came back from the computer where she graded my personality and said, uh, I had some answers wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was wrong with your personality from Walmart's well, point he, of view? My strategy with these, these tests was to give the obvious right answer. You know, it's usually pretty an obvious. You know, if it's a proposition in the, in the test is, I have stolen the following amount, check dollar amount below, <laughs> of goods from my employers in the last year. I see what you mean. You know, it's got to be zero. <laughs> yeah. Or if the, the, another uh, test proposition you often run into is, it's, it's always better to work when you're a little bit high. Mm, that's, not, a tough, <laughs> that's a tough one to know the right answer yeah. to. But the one that I got, one of the ones I got wrong, and I don't remember the um, others quite so exactly, you have to follow all rules to the letter at all times. Uh, agree, and how do you agree strongly, and you know, very strongly, up to totally strongly. And I put, um, I think I put very strongly, because I thought, you know, if I put, went too, was too blatant, they'd think I was faking out the test. 
but no, the correct answer was totally. <laughs> <laughs> Very um, strongly is the wrong answer to the question, how, how strongly do you believe in obeying the rules? Yeah, now see, I didn't want to look like too much of a suck-up, but you could Big never mistake. be too much of a suck-up. <laughs> Big mistake. Nevertheless, you got this job at Walmart. Now, uh, you say you made mistakes in Minnesota. What were your mistakes? I think I could have possibly gotten a better-paying job and was offered what appeared to be a better-paying job by another big-box store. But the thing that kind of really scared me about it was it was an 11-hour shift. Now, that has to be illegal. Uh, and, I, and I said, how can this be? And they said, well, do you want the job or not? you mm. want to work full-time or not? Maybe I should have taken that one and just tried to keep on my feet for 11 hours at a time. I don't think I could have done it, though. So instead, you took the Walmart job and you went to the Walmart orientation. I must say this was, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of your book. Yes. Well, you know, Walmart is more than a corporation. It's a cult. Uh, <laughs> okay. It takes uh, an eight-hour orientation, no matter how lowly your job. You know, people, greeters, everybody go through this orientation. Uh, this went stretched from 3 p.m. till almost 11 p.m. And one of the most interesting things to me about it, in addition to the cult-like things, you know, the many speeches from Sam Walton video, on video, um, who is dead, um, was uh, a 12-minute um, video uh, warning us about unions. Oh, yes. So, yeah. And, and what, what do they tell you is... is uh the union situation at Walmart? Well, they, they said there's a danger that unions are often trying to uh, get a foothold at Walmart, and that we had to watch out for that, because unions would take away our rights, not that we had any, <laughs> okay. and, uh, and would, of course, charge ridiculously high dues and so on. It was very frustrating to sit through, because, of course, there was no rebuttal, no alternative viewpoint presented. And, and uh, after uh, going through the eight-hour Walmart orientation, Barbara Ehrenreich, at last you went to work, and you uh, sold the, the famous Kathy Lee collection. Yes, well, I at first was quite thrilled to be in ladies' wear, thinking I would be in a position to get, be giving fashion tips to <laughs> Midwesterners who you're, you're could use some fashion tips. <laughs> Actually, it turned out to be one of the hardest jobs in the store because... Women try on clothes, and in Walmart, they try them on by the shopping cart full. The shopping cart full? Oh, yeah, you shop with a shopping cart, even in the clothing departments there. And my job uh, was to put everything back in its exact place. Uh-huh. The things people had tried on, as well as things they had tossed on the floor or uh, secreted in the wrong parts of the department. And this was very mentally taxing. Uh, John, the one this, I never call any job unskilled anymore. Uh, to learn where everything went, and then just when I had that all memorized and I knew the the whole map of ladies' wear and all the different clothing lines in it, you know, Kathy Lee, Jordache, Faded Glory, White Stag, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the manager would change the whole thing <laughs> because they, you know, they just do that in uh, retail. One last question. You took these jobs under a bit of a false pretense. Um, did you ever come out to, to any of your co-workers? And, and if so, what was their response to finding out that really you were a middle-class writer on assignment? Well, yes, I, that deception weighed heavily on me, and I was always very anxious before coming out to 
you know, someone, um, you know, you, or a few people who I knew especially well at the end of my career in a particular job. And I didn't know what response to get. I would get, but what I got was quite surprising, was people were really underwhelmed when I'd say, you know, I'm really a writer. <laughs> oh. Uh, <laughs> you know, everybody's a writer. Uh-huh. Uh, anybody who's literate is a writer. And I did run into people who were writing poems or a journal or even a book in one case. Uh, you know, we have a lot of, you know, maybe assumptions about low-wage people that are really wrong. And it didn't change their image, I think, that much of me as a waitress or a house cleaner. Barbara Ehrenreich's classic essay, Nickel and Dimed, started out as an essay in Harper's Magazine in 1999, and became a best-selling book in 2002. That's when we recorded this interview. The original piece opens her new book of collected essays. It's out now, and it's called Had I Known. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month, or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.